This is the second, of a, uh, second week of a series we're calling You're Dead, Now What? Um, I've been ministering for a long time, and this is the first time I've ever done a series like this. Um, not because I've not wanted to, uh, but simply because I uh, have not had so many people until recently ask me so many questions about the topics that we're going to cover in this series. Last week we talked about, uh, after you die, what does the Bible say about what happens to you? And I gave you a couple of foundational things uh, that we talked about last week. And uh, if you weren't here, you can go online and uh, go to our website and, uh, and listen to the podcast of last week to kind of lay some foundation for this week. Uh, this week being, uh, I knew this was going to happen because we've planned series way ahead, so I knew this week was going to happen this week as far as the series. And so today I want to talk about something that's probably my least favorite topic to talk about, okay? That's the topic of, is hell real? And the next week, for those who like to have an uplifting message, next week we get to talk about heaven. So it'll be a lot more exciting. Then we'll wrap up the series in three weeks uh, talking about some things about living with the end in mind. Now, this morning I want to talk about this, and the reason I decided to do it on this day specifically is because, in a real sense, God is our Father in heaven. And uh, God is our Father, and, and is a, a heavenly Father. He's a perfect Father. Uh, but on Father's Day, so often as we, as we uh, I'm a father myself, and I'm a grandfather now too. But the thing about it is, is, is that in life, when we talk about fathers, we have all kind of roles, do we not, as fathers? Uh, we have uh, roles of encouraging our kids. We have roles of, uh, of doing all kinds of things. But one of the things that we do if we are a father who really loves our kids is we warn our kids, do we not? Do we not warn our kids? We warn them about some things that could happen in their life if they do certain things that's going to happen, some consequences of those actions. And the reason we do it is because we love them. And so today, as we look at this topic that we're going to be talking about today, is hell real? I, I, really, in a sense, what it is, it's, it's not surprising that when we read in Scripture about how Jesus approaches this topic. Because if you look in Scripture in the Gospels, you will notice in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will notice that there's Jesus, Jesus, God, who's God, talks more about hell and the reality of hell than he does about heaven. And you're going like, well, why does he do that? Because he is the loving father who is warning us about the consequences of rejecting him, of turning away from him. And today, as we talk about this, I think hopefully you'll have a, a better grasp of what it means and why it's important to understand. Because truthfully, I believe this to be true, that you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. You're not ready to really live life the way God intended for you to live until you're ready to die. So this morning we're going to look at uh, this, this topic. Um, now, the interesting thing is last week I mentioned several books that's become recently uh, become very popular, but one book that was written, I uh, mentioned, was about, written by a cardiologist. His name is Dr. Maurice Rawlings. And he wrote this book where he and his associates, he's a cardiologist who works in an emergency room, and uh, he wrote this book. It was, interestingly enough, after interviewing over 300 of his uh, patients who had a flat line or near-death experience. And he did it really quickly. Within the next day after this experience, he would interview them here as an associate and ask them a few questions. And then, then he wrote a book about this, about these experiences. Now, it was an interesting book. I didn't read the whole thing. I read the highlights of it. But the interesting thing about it, it was talking about all the experiences these people had. And one of the interesting things was is how soon after the experience that he interviewed them, they didn't have time to process a lot of things, so they were kind of like fresh experiences, things that just had happened. And he found that in, in the book he mentioned, out of the 300 people that he interviewed, uh, all, over half of those people, when they experienced or, or shared the experience they had, 
this kind of near-death experience thing, over half of them experienced things that would be considered torment or things that we would not consider heavenly at all. And um, he found that to be interesting to them. And, and he wrote a conclusion at the end of the book, and he says this, he says, just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is a life after death. And this is what he says. And if I don't know where I'm going, it's not safe to die. I'm going, what a weird comment. It's not safe to die if you don't know where you're going. Uh, think about that. It's kind of a funny co- uh, thing. You know, it's not safe to die. If you don't know where you're going, you can't live life. If you're, if you're focused and you're fearful of things in life. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at one passage in particular, and I want to look at a whole bunch of passages in Scripture that help us to understand this whole issue of what, what is the, the reality of hell. Now, the thing about it is this, is uh, the Bible talks about this a lot. I sure Jesus talks about it a lot. And one of the passages in particular he talks about is in Luke chapter 16. So if you have your Bible this morning, and you want to turn with me and follow along, you can do that. But also, if you don't have a Bible, if you have a bulletin, in the bulletin there's an outline, and in the outline is the scripture that we're going to be looking at today, the primary scripture we're going to be looking at today that I want to talk about. It's a story, it's called the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, it's interesting because this is considered by most people to be a parable, but it's the only parable where there's actually a person's name mentioned in the parable. Most all the rest of the parables just talks about a man or a woman or these different people, but... Here it talks about, it actually talks about one of the characters. And as Jesus is sharing the story, whether it's a parable or whether it's a real story, it really doesn't matter so much as that he tells, it, it expresses some truths about a topic that's very difficult. He says this in Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in a luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And it was really a gross description here. It says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, this is not something we probably would think about, but what this means here basically is this. Carrying him to Abraham's side was a place of comfort. It was considered a place where where Abraham was kind of the father of the Jewish nation. And so they considered this a place of comfort, where his soul would rest and wait for the second coming of Christ. Then it says this, the rich man also died, and he was buried. And this is where we find him, though. It says, in Hades, and we talked about this last week, is a place where those who, who do not follow Christ go and spend time before the judgment. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, just a couple of things before we go forward in the rest of the passage. The point of this story is not that the rich man, the reason he is in hell because he's rich, okay? That's not the point of the story. Some people say, well, you know, they kind of take it the wrong way. It's, in fact, what's interesting here is he looks up from this place, this Hades, this place, and he sees uh, Lazarus by the side of Abraham. And if you look at Abraham's life, Abraham, in this life, on this world, was a very wealthy man. So it has nothing to do with how wealthy you are or not wealthy. But at the same time, it's also, I think it's worth noting, that the man who went to heaven was poor on earth, and the man who went to hell was rich on earth. It's just one of many examples that shoots down the whole false gospel of wealth and prosperity. That if you follow Christ and, 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 you, and uh, if you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and if you're not healthy and wealthy, and if you're following Christ, then it must be because you don't have enough faith. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible never says that, that just because you follow Christ, you'll be healthy and, and wealthy. And we see that consistently in Scripture, and this is just one example of that false idea 
That is, uh, if God's on your side, then you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Now, just a, that was just a side note. But in the verse 24, we see it going further. It says, so the rich man looks up to heaven, uh, looks up and he sees Lazarus standing next to Abraham, and he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in agony. And then he says this, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, them, let him warn them, so that they will not all also not come to this place of torment. Um, when I read that and when I understand after 30 years of ministry, one of the things I understand that there are many people in the room when we read these words and we talk about this issue of heaven and hell, in, in a real sense, uh, we have a difficult time. Uh, sometimes it, it's something that actually hinders some people from making the decision to follow Christ. Because the reality is this, is that all of us probably somewhere in our life have somebody that we know whether it be a close friend or a relative or someone who has died and has not followed Christ. And so for us to say that I need Christ in my life so that I can be with God for eternity is almost as if we're indicting that person to a life of agony. And so we, we struggle with that sometimes. But I want you to notice the one request that, that this, man, this rich man has. The one request he says, please tell my family, please warn my brothers, don't let them come to where I am. It's his only request other than dipping uh, his finger in the water and giving him some, some, uh, something to quench his thirst. And so we read a little bit further. Abraham replied and said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. If someone from the dead shows up, they will believe it. And then Jesus ends the story by saying this. He says, he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. Even if someone rises from the dead. It's kind of a prophetic saying here that Jesus is, is staying here. He's saying this, look, I'm going to ri raise from the dead, and there will be people, even though I raise from the dead, they won't follow me either. So that's not going to cause people to follow me. What's going to cause people to follow me? It's a choice they make. So we read the story about this man who is in Hades, a place of agony, a place separated from God by this great chasm, and I want us just to spend a few moments talking about what the Bible says concerning this place. Because so often we have so many, so many objections to it. And we have this emotional objection too, which I want to address as well today, because we don't often do that. Um, and I just want us to be honest about our feelings toward this. And honestly, I, like I said, I really don't like to talk about hell. I really don't. It's not my top ten. Bill, what would you like to preach on this week? Well, hell is not in the top ten. But I do remember years ago uh, reading, uh, and this was when I was in seminary, R.C. Sproul, who was a, a great teacher, said this. He said this to, to people who teach and preach. He says, your job is to believe and to preach and teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want it to say is true. And so if I'm going to teach the whole gospel, the whole of Scripture here, I have to teach even the things that I don't like and I don't really like to talk about, but it's a reality. And I want to, the reason I say that is this, is this, because, and I shared this last week, it is increasingly important in our culture, in our civilization that we live in, 
to do this, to, to say those things, because we have become pretty used to developing, developing our belief system around subjective feelings. We believe things to be true that we like, and we feel good about it, and if we don't like them, we don't feel good about them, they must not be true. And we develop the system of belief, what we think is true, not based upon truth, but upon feelings and desires in our life. And I've recently, and this has been true throughout, throughout history, but recently there's been numerous books written by people who, who are Christian authors who have tried to just push away the whole idea of hell in some ways. And the, re, the thing is, is that I would encourage you, you know, you can read those, they're interesting, but the problem is, just read Matthew 25. Just read the Gospel of Matthew and see what Jesus has to say about this topic as well. We may not emotionally agree with it, but it really doesn't matter because that's not how truth is determined. It's kind of like this. How many of you are planning on going to Chicago anytime soon? I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I look at John. John used to live up there. I, you know, I've, I'm going up there this summer. I may go with it. I don't know. But one of the things many people do if you're traveling to Chicago is you go see the tall buildings, right? You go up either in the Hancock building or the it's called the Willis Tower now, I think. It used to be called the Sears Tower. Okay, I've never been in either one of them. And if you noticed in the pictures during the offering uh, of the kids, you notice where Nate and his two sons were? I don't know if you noticed who that was, but Nate and his two sons were up in that Willis Tower, and that place is that glass place out there, you know, where you stand. I've seen it in pictures. I promise you I will never go there. I am terrified of heights. Now, I, don't, I know it's weird because I love roller coasters. And I'll get on any roller coaster anywhere, strap myself in, and ride for hours. But I will not stand up on top of a building with nothing under me, even though it might be a big railing or something, because it terrifies me. I hate, I hate heights. But some of you like heights, so you may go somewhere and get on top of a tall building somewhere, or you might go to a place, you can't do it around here, but you can go to a place like Virginia, where I used to live, and hike up on a tall mountain and stand out there on the edge of a ledge and look out over and go, oh, this is so beautiful, isn't it great? And you're probably standing there, and you can think all you want. You're going like, it is so beautiful, you know, God must have wanted me to fly it. Because look at the beautiful, I mean, it has to go soaring. I mean, we ever thought about that? Just, wouldn't it be great if you could just, and some people go like, you know, this whole thing of gravity, it's so constricting. So, it, it, you know, I just really can't believe it's, it's real. And so I'm just going to choose to not believe that gravity is real because I believe because God has showed me I'm on this beautiful mountain or on top of this building. You know, he's, it has to be, couldn't be true because he has showed me this right here. He wants me to fly. And so you spread your arms, not your wings, because you don't have any. And you jump, and for, for like a tenth of a second, you can fly. And then all of a sudden, you realize that gravity is real. And whether you feel like it or not, you can't fly. You can't do it, because sometimes, see, it's never to our benefit to believe in something because we like it or we don't like it. The question is, what is, it, what is true? What's true? J. Vernon McGee says it this way. He was a preacher. He says, look, this is God's universe, and he's doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You get your own universe, then we can talk. Folks, there are things in this world because... We didn't create them that we may not agree with, that we may not like, but it's true anyway. I know it's, it's tough in our culture to say that, but that's the way it is. So the Bible uses 
So what does the Bible say about this topic we don't, want, we don't like, the topic of hell? Well, it, it, it uses a word to describe hell. One of the things we don't, that's really sometimes a conflicting with many people, it uses the word, the word everlasting to describe how, how long hell is. It's used in Matthew 25. It's also used in the verse we looked at last week in 2 Thessalonians 1, where it says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I did a little research on the word everlasting there. And the Bible is not written originally in English, okay? I think most of you know that, but it was written in the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek and Aramaic. And the thing is, mostly Greek. And the thing is, is as I studied Greek in school, and I studied a little bit of Hebrew, but a lot of Greek, I still don't know how to speak it, okay? Just don't ask me anything Greek, okay? Because it's been a long time. I mean, how do you learn the language in high school and it's been 20 years and you still speak it? Just don't happen unless you've been doing it regular. So I have to go back and study. And so I went back and looked at this word in the Greek and asked, looked at Greek scholars and what does this word mean, everlasting? And you will find it amazingly means this. It means last forever. That's all it means. It lasts forever. That's what the word everlasting means. It's exactly what it says. It's one of those words that you don't have to say there's like a deeper meaning. No, it's exactly what it says. And it's the same word that it's used, and we'll talk about this next week, to describe heaven. I find it interesting that to me that a lot of people don't believe in an everlasting destruction, but they love to believe in an everlasting reward called heaven. And the reason why is because it feels good. It feels good. But the Bible uses the same word for both heaven and hell. They're everlasting, they're eternal. We talked about this some last week, but that's one of the things. Now, there are a number of other snapshots in Scripture, and I don't have time today to cover them all, but there's a num number of other snapshots in Scripture that help us to see what hell is like. In Matthew 13, it says, Jesus says, it's like a fiery furnace. He says that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, he talks about it is a place of outer or complete utter darkness. In Luke 16, the text that we looked at today, it's a place where there is the exclusion of God's presence. There is not God. It's a place of agony. In Revelation 20, it portray, portrays hell as a second death. Now, also Scripture talks about hell as a place of suffering. And it's multiple types of suffering it talks about. One of them is emotional suffering. Uh, one of the words used for hell in Scripture is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a, a reference to a deep valley outside of Jerusalem where garbage will accumulate and eventually be burned. And once the garbage gets thrown into Gehenna, this, this garbage dump, it's worthless. And it's a place beyond repair. It's irredeemable. And there is this image of hell. That's one of the things they use this image of hell. Jesus describes the emotional suffering of hell in Matthew 13. And he says that in, in hell there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is a physical response to regret. When you're going, you know, like, I wish I'd have done something different. What do you do? You grit your teeth. You gnash your teeth. It's that normal response we have to wishing that we'd done something else. So one of the ways that hell is described as a place is where there is eternal regret for decisions that were not made, for opportunities that were missed, uh, uh, to uh, opportunities that were refused. That's one type of suffering the Bible talks about. Another type of su suffering is physical suffering. We talked about this last week some. We talked about, typically when we speak of uh, heaven, we talk about it being, you know, once you uh, have, go from this earth and you're with God, your spirit is there, and then it, it, at, uh, we talked about this last week, and then when you, uh, 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 judgment comes, then we'll receive a physical body, but it will be a heavenly body. 
We talked about the physicality of that, and we're, we love that, but also it talks about that everyone uh, at, at judgment receives some kind of a physical, physical body. We don't know exactly what it looks like. But it's also a physical place, and so it talks about physical suffering. Now, some of the imagery that is used is that of fire, just to describe the agony, and we see in Luke 16, it's a place where there is physical suffering and pain. Also, there's relational suffering. Sometimes hell is depicted as a kind of a party place. ACDC, you remember, you remember that group? Your favorite group, right? I know, okay. No, back in the 70s, I'm guessing, I'm, that says how old it was. Uh, back in the 70s, the group, and they actually described hell as a place where there's like a giant frat party going on. I don't know where they got it from. It wasn't scripture, I'll just tell you that. And the thing is, the thing is, is that never, I don't, I'm not sure where they got that. But, but hell, by definition, is lack of community. We even see this in Luke 16, the verse we looked at today, because Lazarus goes to be the Abraham side, which is by definition community, it's connection with someone else. He's in a place of comfort, but we, we see that the rich man is by himself. In fact, we know in our culture, in our world, that, that, that uh, complete isolation is a form of torture. And one theologian described hell as this, nothing but yourself for all of eternity. So it's a place of relational suffering. I think the, the, most, the most graphic suffering, though, that we see and described about hell is spiritual suffering. And I believe this is the worst suffering of all because simply defined, if I was to give you a simple definition of hell, it's simply this. Hell is a place where God is not. Hell is a place where God is not. Now, the interesting thing about the world we live in now is this, the physical world we live in, that the most pagan atheist has an opportunity to enjoy the presence of God to some degree while they live here on this earth. They can look up into a blue sky. They can feel the warmth of the sun upon their face. They can experience some of who God is, even if they don't believe and agree with him or want to have anything to do with him. It's just by default. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And so no matter who you are, while you're on, on this earth, you get to experience some of who God is. Now, everything good in this life comes from God, the Bible says, from the Father. But hell, in, in a sense, is a, complete, it's a place with the absence of God. The absence of God. I've heard it described or explained this way. For a Christian, this life on this earth is the closest uh, to hell that they will ever experience. For the non-Christian, the person who doesn't want to follow Christ, this is the closest to heaven that they will ever experience. So hell, I think, is best understood this way. Complete absence of God. It is other, out, outer darkness. In fact, in Revelation, it's described as outside of God. Last week, we talked about this, but I'll, we talked about judgment. But we also talked about Matthew 25, 41, uh, which describes the last day of judgment. It says this, uh, God will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is a place away from, outside of who God is. So in a real sense, see, God didn't have to really even make a place, a horrible place, create a horrible place. He just allowed a space where he wasn't. A place where he wasn't. And when you take God out of the equation, by definition, that's hell. When you take him out of the equation, hell is what you're left with. Henry Morris, uh, who is a writer, describes it this way. He said, essentially, he says, hell is a place 
where all aspects of the presence of God will be completely withdrawn forever. Thus in hell there will be no love, for God is love. There will be no light, for God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And, and there will be no peace or rest or joy, since these are all attributes of God. On the contrary, there will be eternal corruption, strife, rebellion, and hatred. It is a place without God's presence. It is a place where those who don't want to live with God will be granted the freedom to do so. Now, I want to conclude with the biggest objection that we have to the whole idea of hell. Number one problem we have with it. And this is what, what, what I've heard a thousand times. How can a loving God send people to hell? Ever heard that one? Ever said that one? Don't raise your hand. Okay? How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, let me share with you the difference. Okay, fathers, what is the difference between a warning to your children and, and, and um, a threat? Is there a difference between a warning and a threat? A threat is when my child does, or they're going to do something, and I say, if you do this, I'm going to do this. And if you're a good father, let me just give you some parenting advice. This is not part of the sermon, but it's in parenting advice. If you warn it's a threat, do not ever give a threat to your child unless you're willing to back it up. Okay? Because after a while, they'll know you're a pushover. That you're all, hmm, and nothing, nothing real comes out. Okay? Parent, good parenting advice. And you don't have to threaten them very often. You just got to do it one or two times, and it works. Because they know after that, if you really back it up, that what you say means business. I did the same thing when I was a student minister for years. Kids would come to me and try to push the buttons. None of you guys do that in student ministry here, I know. But, you know, you try to push the buttons. And, you know, if I said, if you guys are going to do this, this is what's going to happen. Only took one person to happen to. You know, and they understood we meant business. Did a whole student ministry. So the thing is a parent. So there's a difference. Now, a warning is what? As a parent, you're going to warn your children about a lot of things, right? You're going to warn them about, you know, this is the way the world is. And if you do this, this is going to happen. But it's your choice, right? That's a warning. And if you're a loving parent, you will warn your children. Now, in Luke 16, 31, it's a warning. God doesn't say, I'm going to make you go there. He says, I'm warning you. This is the way the world works. I put it in motion this way. Again and again, we hear these warnings from God. That's what he talks about, Jesus. That's why he talks about this so often in the Gospels, why Jesus talks about the whole thing of hell. He doesn't want anybody to go there. But he's willing to warn people, and so we hear it sometimes as a threat. It's not a threat, it's a warning. So as we look at it this morning, you know, the reason we warn our children is because we love them. The reason that God warns us so much in Scripture is because He loves us. It's kind of like this. Let me play this out with me. Um, I, I pr thank God that I've never experienced this, but I've seen this experience many times. Say that your child becomes a teen. And they just decide to reject you. 
I mean, utterly reject you. They reject your, your, anything in your family, everything you want to do. Um, he or she has decided they want nothing to do with it. They shun you. They shun your love. They don't want to hear from you. They don't want to see you. They don't want your provision. There is a part of you, there is a part of you and I, I can imagine this, a holy, righteous part of you as a parent, that if your child was pushing that far away and you saw them going into danger, what would you want to do? You would want to go and grab them and tie them to a post, Right? That's what one of my friends told me one time when his son was rejecting him that way. He said, this is the way I feel. You know, because I, I see them going down this path and I've warned them and I've warned them and I've warned them and I've done everything in my power and they won't listen to me. And you could tie them to a post and you could look at them and keep them there for a few days. We call that, uh, you'd be in prison for that, by the way. But the, the, the issue is, the issue is, if you did that, you could say, you're going to obey me, and you're going to love me. Is that the way love works? Thank you. I got a response over here. Okay. They are listening. Very good. Okay. It's a warning. Because life, does, life doesn't work that way. Peter Kreff, a philosopher, explains it this way. He says, look, because God is love, those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. The answer to the question of why would God send, a, send people to hell is it this. He doesn't. He doesn't. He will let people choose to reject him. Even though, let me tell you something. God is the, I don't know what to call God. He's not a person. I don't know, he's a big, God, he's God, okay. God is the only, whatever he is in the whole universe who has the power to make us love him, right? Is that your understanding of God? He's um, all-powerful? My God, I understand, could do that if he wanted to. Unlike me as a parent making my child love me, you know, it wouldn't work that way. If God wanted to change the rules and make us love him, he could do that. Make us obey him, he could do that but he chooses not to because he defines love as something that is chosen. And so in a real sense, what it is that what happens is, is when he will let people choose to reject him. And if they don't want to live in his presence, they don't have to. And sin and rebellion toward, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, one of my favorite writers. It says, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell itself is a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to wipe out sin at all costs and give them, give them a fresh start? Guess what? He did on the cross. He makes us an offer. He says, I will, we, I will wipe out your sin. I will give you a fresh start if you'll just do this. He did that. Do you want him to forgive us? He will if you ask. But the problem is, is many people won't ask. And because of that, what are they asking God? They're saying, God, just leave me alone. And guess what God will do? He will. He'll leave you alone for eternity. See, that's not what God wants, but God will allow that. 2 Peter 3, 9, this is what God wants. It says this, says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's his heart. 
That's what he wants. And he so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus Christ to pay for the, the, the penalty for our sin. But the problem is he's still not going to force you to do it, to accept it. See, hell is simply a place where God is not so that people who don't want to spend eternity with him don't have to. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. Without hell, there is no choice, and without a choice, heaven would not be heaven. Heaven would be hell because we would have no choice. We would be robots, basically. So as a parent, a loving father or mother, I can't force my kids to love me. You can't do it because that's not how love works. So what do you do? Well, there's some things as a parent that I will try to do in my power to try to get my kid back on track. What would you do as a parent if your child was going in the opposite direction, kind of rejected? Well, one of the things you could do is you could try to send some people into their life to influence them, right? I'll tell you that. As a parent, I look carefully. I did. Now I can't do anything about it. My kids are grown and gone. But uh, I still look at them. I'm sorry. You never quit being a parent. But uh, the issue is, is when they were, especially in their formative years, I look at who are their friends. Who is influencing them? You know, and that's one of the things I could do if I, if I can't force them to love me but, or, to or to follow the plan. But I could do that. I could also write them a letter. I mean, how archaic is that? Let's say an email, okay? We could send them an email. Now, the, qu the question is, is that yeah, I could send them a letter and it tells them everything that's in my heart, all the reasons that I would love for them to follow the plan and to, and to look at who God has made them to be and all those things. But the issue is they don't have to read the letter, do they? I could also try to get their attention i mean there's some things you can still do because most of the time even though a child may reject you they'll still accept your money right yeah i found it to be true and sometimes the last thing you need to do is you can get their attention if you don't give them the money sometimes we just enable our kids to do stupid things and we we'd be better off not doing that it'd be more loving so, so here's the question. What is God supposed to do to show how much he loves us? I mean, he said it to us. He has sent people. I mean, we just finished 31 weeks of the story. How many people has God sent to us throughout history to show us how much he loves us? I mean, starting back in the Old Testament all the way through, and he still does it today. He's written a letter. It's called the Bible. He's written this letter to us, and, he's, and he says to us, hey, hey, I love you this much, and this is, what I want you, this, is, this is how much I love you, and I want to show you that. But you've got to read the letter. You've got to follow what the letter says. And he tries to get our attention. He allows things. You know, God doesn't always rescue us from every situation because he knows what will best to redirect our lives, and even then we can choose to go our own way. Even then. And then finally, he sent his own son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the thing about that is God's done everything he can do. He does the same things that we could do in a sense. Even though God has the power to do it differently. I mean, it says something to me about the, the incredible depth of his love. He would rather us reject him then force us to love him because that would not be love. 
One thing I noticed about this rich man in Luke 16 is he doesn't seem to blame God, does he? He never, once in that story, blames God for his situation. It's interesting because he doesn't seem bitter about the reality he now finds himself in in Hades. He seems to know what's going on. He seems to have this awareness on that side of how much God did, just how holy God is and how much he did to save us from our sins. So he doesn't say, well, this isn't fair. What did I do to deserve this? No, in hell, you won't blame God because you'll know exactly your situation. And it'll be a place of regret. So what more could a loving father do? He has sent people. He's written a letter. He's come. He's bled. He's died. He's risen. He's warned us. He does all these things. But then in the end, if you choose to reject him, to not follow him, he will honor that. And he honored that by creating a place called hell that we can be separate from him from all of eternity. That's how much our all-powerful God loves us. Let's pray. God, if this is true, and I believe it is, it changes everything. We are desperate to be rescued as a people, and we need your help. We need you to save us. So God, I pray that as we talk about hell, it wouldn't leave us feel, just feeling overwhelmed with fear. Instead, God, I pray that it would leave us feeling overwhelmed by your love at the length that you have gone to so that we don't have to live outside of your presence, so that we can spend eternity with you in heaven. It's a free gift, God, a free gift that if we will just accept it, not only makes a difference for eternity, but it makes a difference in the way we live life now. Because until we're ready to die, God, and, and we're settled in that, we're not ready to live. So God, would you help us in these moments to humble ourselves and to repent of our sins that have separated us from you and to accept your son, Jesus, as our savior and as our sacrifice. And Jesus, what do we say but thank you? Thank you for what you've done in our life. Thank you for warning us time and time and time again about the realities of this world. And in doing so, God, expressing to us your love about how much you are a loving Father who cares for us and doesn't want to see any of us go in that direction. God, thank you for taking our sin and our shame and our guilt on the cross. Thank you for paying our bill. Thank you for making a way for us to spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. Thank you for how much you love us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would encourage you this morning, this week, to consider where you are with God. If you've never taken the step that some of these folks took today when they were baptized, and let me share with you something. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. It's just a step you take to show that you are one. Okay? But some of you need to step across the line. You need to say yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, saying, yeah, I want to spend eternity with you, and I want to start now. And by doing that, the first step is to repent of our sins, saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the, my life and trying to do things my own way. And I agree with what says in your letter, the little bit that I know. And I want to follow you. That's the first step we must take in life. And the second step beyond there, it may be to follow up and be baptized as well. We'll have other baptisms in the future. We have other people who are waiting to be baptized as well. And so that may be a step you need to take.
It may be the step of simply beginning to read his letter to you on a regular basis and asking not what does this say, but what does it say to me so that I can follow this because, God, it's your letter to us, your love letter to us, and how much you really do care and how to live life in a way that will make life rich and meaningful. So all of us have a step. And I would challenge you each day to ask yourself, what is my step? What is the step I need to take personally? It may be a small step. It may be a big step. But we all have one. And we'd love to talk with you about it if you'd like to sometime during the week to set up an appointment. I think that's usually the best way to sit down and talk with somebody. And we have not only staff, but other people in the church would be more than glad to come by and talk with you or, or meet with you here or something. Um, and, and talk about the next steps you need to have in your life and pray with you about that as well. Whatever your need may be, uh, we're here for you. God has called us to, to encourage uh, each other in the Lord. And I hope this morning has not just been something that's been discouraged. I hope it's been encouraging to see what God has done and how much he really loves us. And so as we close this morning here in this time of worship together, we're going to sing a song. And let's stand together and sing as we worship God this morning.